1: I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm
0: Catherine Brobeck.
1: And this is our first bonus episode where we do um, a short story as opposed to a novel. And we are starting with Agatha Christie's first published short story, which is a Poirot, and it's called The Adventure of the Western Star it was first published in the sketch magazine in the UK in 1923 and it was a way for agatha christie to quench readers thirst for more poirot in between novels so as we know her first novel her first novel was a poirot the mysterious affair at styles and before her second poirot novel murder on the links which we'll be reading next came out this was a way to tide readers over both in the UK and the US So we're going to start off doing a synopsis, as always, and I am going to get right to it. Here we go. At Poirot's London office, the American actress Mary Marvell shows him and his associate Captain Hastings three letters hand-delivered to her by a Chinaman, her word, warning that the world-famous Western star diamond will be stolen and returned to its rightful place as the left eye of a Chinese god by the full moon, which is in three days' time.
0: Mary pays some credence to the letters since she remembers her husband, her fellow actor Gregory Rolfe, said he bought it from a Chinaman in San Francisco three years earlier. Mary also directs Poirot and Hastings to a society paper that makes mention of the Star of the East, a second diamond owned by Lord Yardley, rumored to be the right eye of this Chinese god and the Western star's twin. Hastings also recalls that Gregory Rolfe and Lady Yardley were rumored to have had an affair in the U.S. a few years ago.
1: Lady Yardley herself then shows up at Poirot's offices, having been directed there by her good friend, Mary Cavendish. But as Poirot is out, Hastings takes it upon himself to play detective revealing the details of the meeting with Mary Marvell, including the threatening letters.
0: Our Lord Yardley comes to the office, per Poirot's request, tells him he's been putting out feelers to sell the diamond because the family needs money. Poirot then invites himself and Hastings to the Yardley's estate where they witness the apparent theft of the Star of the East ripped right off the neck of Lady Yardley, just as she's about to display it for them. The next day, the Western Star is also stolen, coincidence, by a man claiming to be Gregory Ralph, who signs it out of a hotel safe.
1: Hastings chides Poirot for his failure, but then Poirot reveals the truth. There were never two diamonds, just one. What happened is that Gregory Rolfe blackmailed Lady Yardley after their affair ended into giving him the Star of the East, which he then gave to Mary Marvell, calling it the Western Star. Lady Yardley had a fake diamond placed in the family necklace, so when Lord Yardley started trying to sell it, Lady Yardley contacted Gargary Rolfe in a panic, knowing she'd be found out.
0: Rolf invented the Chinaman story, stole the diamond himself, and signed it out of the hotel. And Lady Yardley uh, pretended to have been robbed so that the potential buyer couldn't discover the diamond and the necklace was a fake. Hastings is really angry that Poirot had included him into all of this. Oh, Hastings.
1: So it's that's a lot of story that Agatha Christie manages to pack into 28 pages, but I'd love to just get into a couple of the clue and deduction scenarios. And the first one is this clue that Gregory Rolfe gave Mary Marvell, the Western star, three years ago. Mary, Mar- Mary Marvell is very specific about that time frame. And then we learn a few pages later that Gregory Rolfe and Lady Yardley were rumored to have had an affair a few years ago, uh, per Hastings. An astute reader will note that those two things happened around the same time. Hence, the two events are likely to be connected or to have something to do with each other. And, of course, they very much have, uh, have a lot to do with each other. It's the affair that Lady Yardley and Gregory Rolf, in fact, had that led to the blackmail, that led to the diamond, the Star of the East, becoming the Western Star. So that's a crucial clue.
0: And then, critically, the Western Star has been insured. Obviously, it's a massive diamond. It's been insured for 50,000 pounds, we're told, which was a significant amount of money in the 1920s. Uh, somewhere around, like, what, half a million dollars or half a million pounds today?
1: Yeah, I think it was. it's, it's at least half a million pounds, maybe even as much as three-quarter of a million pounds. So obviously that's a serious uh, potential incentive um, to, to get that insurance money. And I, I have to say, when I read this, I was reminded of uh, a story in recent tabloid news involving Kim Kardashian, who uh, had has been robbed of her jewels in uh, Paris, and there's a conspiracy theory going on going around that the whole thing is a hoax that she actually orchestrated for purposes of collecting the insurance money and paying off Kanye West's debts. I don't feel so bad referencing that since I love that moment when the actress Mary Marvell abruptly asks Paul and Hastings, do either of you ever see society gossip? And they both plead guilty rather shamefacedly. So I don't feel so bad for having seen the, the cover of Star Magazine, which is today's version of the oh, uh, 30s tabloid rag. For
0: sure. <laughs> I mean, like Speaking of that, I also think that the fact that Poirot immediately turns to a copy of Burke's Peerage to um, look up the Yardleys, like, of course he has one, he's a private detective, but at the same time, it's basically the equivalent of, like, Facebook or Google stalking of 1923.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there was one clue that I thought stuck out a little bit awkwardly, like, I think that the... The clue about the timing, to me, is a classic Christie clue because, A, it's about timing, and, B, it's very casually slipped in. To to mention three years ago and say a few years ago, a few pages later, is not something that's really going to be a major red flag to a lot of readers. But there's this moment when Poirot and Hastings go to Yardley Chase... Um, before anything crazy happens they spend time with Lady Yardley and her children and there's there's this moment when it's noted that she's a very devoted mother and she gets really intense about it and says you know I love them I would do anything for them and I definitely noted it when I was reading I did not make any sort of a useful deduction from it but in the end what I realized after the fact is that the deduction we're supposed to make is that this is a woman who will indeed do anything for her children perhaps even fake getting a diamond ripped off of her neck by a quote-unquote Chinaman.
0: Right. So, in short, what we're talking about is... The idea of one parent getting physical custody, and here in this case, you know, unlike, unlike our present tabloid circumstances, we're talking about Lady Yardley's intense fear that she will lose physical custody of her children.
1: The idea of her losing physical—it's just the period detail is that there's a danger that by, with the revelation that she had engaged in, in an affair— when she was a married woman and a mother that that would lead to her losing custody of her children. That's the, that's the period detail, which it, it, it doesn't work out that way um, anymore. But um, it's a real danger here, and it's her motivation for acting um, so outrageously.
0: Right, and I mean, I, I think... Part of the justification that Poirot will later use to not exonerate her, but to in some way defend her is that the affair... Uh, was it, it's implied that it wasn't physical, it's implied that perhaps they just Mm -hmm. it was was just indiscreet and that they sent perhaps like romantic damning letters to each other.
1: Right, they spent, perhaps they spent time together maybe alone even though there was no physical act which they shouldn't have done and there was a level of intimacy achieved between the two of them that would embarrass her if it were exposed to the public but no physical act. And also, and
0: also the point being made that she'd sort of been emotionally abandoned by Lord Yardley, who was a little bit it seems oh, yeah. like a wanderer and that they like were not concretely in their home and like she felt like she didn't have his attention and thus she was sort of seduced and victimized because of her loneliness yeah. at home
1: well let's just get into that actually and we can we can go back to there's one there's one other clue I do I do want to get to but we can we can get to that a little bit later because I think this to me was actually the most interesting difference between the the short story itself and then the adaptation the televised adaptation of it because in this story there's this contrast between the way that Poirot perceives Lady Yardley and Mary Marvell, and he essentially gives Lady Yardley all of the leeway um, in the world for her actions. He he emphasizes exactly what you're talking about, where he you know she was. She and her husband uh, went to California. Her husband seems to have been engaging in a dalliance of his own. He essentially emotionally abandoned her. She was preyed upon by this actor, Gregory Rolfe, who perhaps from the beginning always intended to get the diamond and to blackmail her. So in that way, she's kind of painted as a victim. And then we get this, you know, there's such an emphasis on what a good mother she is to, in the short story, it's two sons to her two. Um, to her, or daughters, rather, in the short story her two daughters, and um, Paro just loves, loves, loves Lady Yardley, essentially because she's a good mother, um, and just very emotive in the way that he thinks is proper for women. And he kind of hates Mary Marvell. He doesn't hate her, but he doesn't have a lot of respect for her. He seems to, um, you know, in the end, the, the end result of the story is that the woman who engaged in some sort of an affair, pretended to uh, f- pretended that a Chinaman had wrenched a necklace off of her neck and then run away, um, <laughs> fabricated that entire thing, including to the point of not just describing the Chinaman, but uh, uh, putting a piece of silk, of embroidered silk into Lovely. a doorway to make it seem like he had run away. The woman that did all of that, engaged in all that subterfuge and trickery and seat. Um, Poirot completely forgives and holds up as sort of the ideal woman whereas Mary Marvell who is a successful film actress who did nothing wrong other than get the gift of a diamond from her husband is out a diamond and Hastings mentions this at the end and says that doesn't seem fair and Poirot just sort of says eh she'll be fine it's it's a good story for her it's worth
0: actually reading the quote because it's actually like pretty brutal in fact Christy says it's it's brutal brutal. Uh, it says it seems Pasting says it seems a little Unfair on Mary Marvell she has lost her Diamond through no fault of her own Bah said Poirot brutally She has a magnificent Advertisement that is all she Cares for that one now the other She is different Bonne mer Très femme. Yes, I said doubtfully, this Hastings hardly sharing Poirot's view on femininity. I suppose it was Ralph who said her the duplicate letters. Um, But, like, I mean, God, (laughs) like, that's... I think the use of the fact that she says that Poirot says it brutally. I mean, brutally is not a light word to use. And, like, she's pretty yeah, she's pretty efficient in her use of language. So I imagine it was intentional. And it comes at the very end of the story. Um, what I would mm-hmm. say is that I found it really interesting that she has Poirot who... Repeatedly in these, we're just reminded about how fastidious he is. One of the big tells, I think, early on is that one of the first things he does when he gets to Yardley Chase is that he starts playing with the children, like playing games with the children and talking to them about their mother. And it's somewhat fascinating it's a little bit also I think that um, Mary Marvell rejects his advice right she's come to Mm -hmm. see the magnificent Monsieur Poirot and he gives her the advice of like well if you don't you know give me the diamond (laughs) like like if you want it for safekeeping like I will safe keep it for you but she wants to wear it which he thinks is extravagant when she's under risk and the other fascinating thing about that is that it's her rejection of his advice and his services after he has consulted her. It's then that he takes on this case on his own terms. Nobody's paying him to investigate this. He just does it I think because he's so incredibly peeved that Mary mm-hmm. won't listen to mm-hmm. him. And the other yeah. the other thing that I would note is that we mentioned Mary Cavendish earlier who we know from the mysterious affair at Styles, you know that's who that's who's recommended Lady Yardley to go to Poirot, and I mean she tells Hastings that, but presumably Hastings will assume has informed Poirot of you know the the referral, um, and Mary Cavendish is obviously a lady who Poirot, in a lot of ways, also similarly protected in mysterious affair at Styles.
1: So I, I totally agree with you. And what I found so fascinating in watching the televised adaptation, which is part of the Suchet series uh, released by ITV, is that it's completely different in the, in the adaptation. And I certainly did not pick up on that when I first watched it, but having just read the story and then immediately watched the adaptation, I, it was really striking. So in, in the, in the, in the televised version Mary, Mar- Mary Marvel is transformed into Marie Marvel, who is a Belgian film actress as opposed to an American film actress. And Poirot is obsessed with her, and as he's obsessed
0: two, with all Belgian things
1: over the course of the Of course, he's obsessed with all with all Belgian things. And there, there are two, there are kind of two um, purposes, I think, to the change. Both significant. The first is comedic because it's really funny that Poirot is obsessed with this woman, this this Belgian film actress. And there are two separate occasions uh, on which people poke fun at the idea of a Belgian film actress. One by Hastings and one by Jap. And um, we it's probably worth listening to them, actually. Mademoiselle Marie Mavelle, the great Belgian film star, she stays there. Belgian
0: film star? Mm. (laughs) You're pulling my leg. No, Chief Inspector. Poirot does not pull the legs. Marie Mavelle is the greatest film star Belgium has ever produced. I think she's the only film star Belgium's ever produced.
1: You do not remember La Tendresse Orogeuse? Oh what? And Role de Coeur. I didn't even know they made films in Belgium. And I just, I love those clips because it's part of that, the light tone. This is the, this episode is the last episode of the second season of the, of the ITV Poirot series. And it's still in its light stage where it was very hijinxy and funny. And um, this is kind of, for me, the sweet spot of the overall series.
0: Well, I also think there's an interesting thing that we can note before we should absolutely return to Marie, but I would just note this because we're talking about it, is that they adapted heavily the short stories in the early seasons. And a lot of the big hitter novels, like some of the more famous novels, they waited until very late to adapt. And I think that part of it is because they wanted a supporting cast and um, Inspector cap Captain Hastings, Miss Lemon, who we'll get to in a second. They aren't really major characters in most of the novels, but they do make, in the sort of rash of short stories that she primarily wrote during the 1920s, they, um, Hastings in particular, makes a considerable number of appearances, and they adjusted the scripts for that, which is why I think we get more of them versus the later sort of like ninety-minute movie format. Because this we should note is like about fifty minutes; it's like a television episode. But back to back yeah, back, back to Marie Marvel. Um, All
1: right, so back to so back to Marie. So the first the first thing it does is just provide a little bit of comedy, and then the second thing it provides, I think, is is that it humanizes the Poirot as brought to life by David Suchet as opposed to the Poirot on the page because at the end of this story Poirot has to go back to Marie Marvell and tell her essentially your husband is a horrible person he's a villain he blackmail you know he got this diamond via blackmail it was never really yours and You know, you can do better. You need to move on. And it's this incredibly tender scene. Most of it is in French, which I I, I like at least the verisimilitude of two Belgian people would not be speaking in English alone in a room together. So that's good. Well, and it's uh, touching
0: because you get so Suchet Suchet is such a good performer, but you get so much, like— emotion that you don't normally see from Poirot that he feels probably because of his you know love of all things Belgian he
1: yeah, he re- he reveres this woman and he has he has real respect for her talent. and
0: her and, and her sadness and it's like really clear that he doesn't yeah. want to be telling her this but obviously she needs to know and i mean i think that the, the there aren't subtitles which is like a fascinating choice for a show in English to not present a really emotional scene with subtitles. So you're just having to—if you don't know French—you're just having to, you know, watch these two people's expressions in this incredibly intimate, sad moment.
1: Yeah, I like—I I like the fact that they don't subtitle, it, and I agree; it makes the, it makes the scene a lot more interesting um, and emotional. And then Poirot, but but what's nice is that it's not like because he has all these feelings for Marie Marvell that he then um, can't have as much sympathy for Lady Yardley. He he has just as much sympathy for Lady Yardley as he does in the short story. He just has a, his heart is more open than, than it seems to be in the short story. And I was a little turned off by the Poirot on the page, and I absolutely loved the Poirot on the screen. And I, uh, the difference to me was starker than I expected it to
0: be. Yeah, I think that this is one of the cases where you understand why the Suchet adaptation holds so much weight because it really shades mm-hmm. how we view Poirot. Because, especially in this, if you have 28 pages of him, obviously he has to be like pithy and to the point and, you know, get her done. And. And there's not a lot of room in 28 pages to see a warmer, kinder Poirot. And also, that's not so much in these books. You know, we saw it in The Secret Adversary a little bit where they were, you know, warmer, more developed characters. But in The Puzzle Mysteries, there's so much plot that there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of room to show you know things like emotion and you know you can see that in just like absolutely just a flicker across a character's face on the show and that's hugely something that benefits Poirot in particular given how fussy a character he is and how um you know in the in the story he comes across as such a know-it-all I mean Hastings doesn't come across well, at all. We can come back no, to that. No. But, um, you know, Poirot comes across very severely, especially by the end of it. And that is like the opposite of the case in the adaptation.
1: In the adaptation. No, I agree. And in, in just in general, I did find it interesting that, and you. Already sort of made this point by emphasizing how, how many of the short stories are in the earlier seasons, but when you're adapting a short story as opposed to a novel, it's you, you have to complicate the what's on the written page and actually spread it out and make it to put more in there rather than taking things out. Right. Which is you know a unique challenge for for adaptation usually it's it's working the other way around at least in in this case and we can see as we go on and and we look at some of the other short stories being adapted the episode is so much the better for it not only for Poirot's character and the interactions between him and Hastings and Inspector Japp and Miss Lemon but there's also a complication of the plot that happens that just enhances the action elements of the right, story for sure. and makes the makes the end of it a lot more exciting. But, you know, fully retains the puzzle mystery elements and just just makes it bigger and better. I, so I was really impressed with the um, with the adaptation. Well done, Clive Exton including Inspector Japp and Miss Lemon in this story, obviously they don't appear in the written story at all. That's going to be a a running pattern. I have a feeling throughout this, the the series, right? I mean, they're, they're just constantly being inserted into stories where they weren't before and maybe even to a certain extent, Hastings, although Hastings is in a lot of these short stories as they are written. That's at least my
0: understanding. I think he's in a majority of the short stories. Um, But he's only in eight books.
1: Right, right. So perhaps he's inserted into a lot more of the books.
0: Which is, like, an insane thing to think that he's only in eight books. Especially because we're, um, again, if this is a second appearance of Poirot, I think Murder on the Links comes out immediately after these first short stories are published. But, um, you know, if, if... This is only the second appearance of Poirot and Hastings, and in both cases, we are reading this through Hastings. It's first-person narration, you know? And that is also, I think, it's odd because you can totally shift everything in the adaptations of these because clearly you don't have to stick with Hastings' perspective. And in fact, really, the camera doesn't linger with him a lot, you know? And and I think you know the Um, the, the plot expansion here is what mm -hmm. brings in Jap. I mean, that's how they stretch out the plot.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about that. I Because I thought that, as I said, I thought it was so clever. So Lord Yardley talks about trying to find a buyer for the diamond through this agent named Hofberg, and then, of course, Poirot sets things in motion such that there is a man coming down to Yardley chase the night that the uh, the diamond seems to be stolen, who is going to vet the diamond. That man is never even named, and he never appears in the story. But the adaptation takes Hofberg and then man and makes um, very important characters out of them. Basically the man who was coming to Yardley Chase to look at the diamond is a a known collector of precious jewels who has connections in the criminal underworld Inspector Jap has been after him for a long time and the adaptation opens with Jap thinking he's gotten him, that he's finally nabbed him, but this guy slips out of his grasp and Jap is tracking him the whole time. So that kind of gets Jap in there and and this man who has a pretty fantastic name, his name is, his name is Henrik van Brax. And he, um, he is a secondary villain, uh, to Gregory Rolfe and the pursuit of Henrik van Brax and Gregory Rolfe at a 19, a charmingly picturesque mid thirties airport is, um, a really, really uh, enjoyable scene in the third act of this episode and it of course does not exist at all in the story and it, it just really filled out the story and i thought it made it a lot better. So the other big difference between the adaptation and the story is that it in the story ends and i found it quite jarring with Hastings being really angry at Poirot the entire the entire time the story had, being narrated from Hastings's first person point of view he thinks he's doing a better job than Poirot. He thinks that Poirot is essentially slacking um, and not moving as quickly as he should and Hastings is, pre- is preening himself in his usual clueless and way. here
0: I think we should actually talk about what the last clue was because this is actually yes. where Hastings mucked everything up. Um, so Poirot is out of the office when Lady Yardley comes to visit, and Hastings, because he just thinks he's a really great detective, he decides that he will take her interview, and while it later becomes clear that she had gone to Poirot basically to confess everything that was happening, Hastings thinks that he's being very clever, and he's like, oh, well you are here because you received similar letters threatening you from a Chinaman, just like like Mary Marvell. And she's like, oh, Mary Marvell was here. And he's like, well yes, for the same letters, I assure you. And she's like, yes. The letters that I definitely received and destroyed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, that definitely happened. That, letters, right? That's it's a little the bit thing. like I mean, it's a little bit like when Jan Brady tell like makes up a story in in the Brady Bunch, very slowly. You know the Philip Philip Glass moment.
0: That's Philip it. Philip Glass, yeah. <laughs> Top, top topical um, reference
1: <laughs> yeah another another topical reference sure Jan that's, a, that's what I wanted sure 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 Maude yes isn't her name Maude I think it's Maude um so yeah so well, Hastings completely mucks it up and um Poirot, at the end of the story, of, of the written story, has a, a pithy reason for why Hastings should have realized uh, what he had done even after he let the cat out of the bag, which is, after Hastings says, well, where you know where are these letters that you also got that I just told you about? And Lady Yardley says, oh, I destroyed them. And, of course, she says that because they didn't exist. But Poirot says that... Um, uh, a woman never destroys a letter. she can avoid it, not even if it would be more prudent to do so, which is one of those stuck in its own time sorts of deductions, and that of course all women act the same way about letters and whatnot. Oh, no, and, I will you know, tell you
0: I will tell you as a yeah. as a lady I'm um. I- I'm bad about that. Like I won't delete emails, even if they're like painful emails, they're probably like in my Google archive. You
1: know what? I'm 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 not a lady and I'm bad about that too. Yeah. So, so
0: I mean maybe it's a little <laughs> so I guess it's sexist, but like it's still And
1: I think there might be some ladies who are who are good about it.
0: <laughs> maybe. I'm one hundred percent
1: Maybe I'm I don't not know. I'm
0: one hundred percent not one of them. So I read it and I was like, Yeah, it seems about right. Like <laughs>
1: You were like, you go, you go, Poirot. I was like, yeah. You, you understand yeah, me. I was
0: pretty, pretty accurate <laughs> about my uh, correspondence habits, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, I rolled my eyes a little, a little bit at this one, but, but in any case, it. I think the larger issue with this Hastings Poirot relationship, you know, the that conversation really devolves into uh, a very angry and abrupt ending, and I'm just going to read straight, straight from the end here. Hastings, this is Hastings speaking. It's no. Good, you've gone a bit too far this time. And then Poirot says, Mon Dieu, but how you enrage yourself for nothing, Mon ami. And then Hastings says, I'm fed up. And he goes out the door and bangs the door like a child. And it's ridiculous. And the story ends. And the adaptation ends in a opposite of a way as you can imagine from that so much so that I almost feel like they made the decision to flip this on his head like they, they must have.
0: Well, you. I, I think you needed to read the end of the paragraph too, because it's even worse when Poirot had made a laugh, an absolute laughing stock of me. I decided that he needed a sharp lesson. I will let some time elapse before I forgave him. He had encouraged me to make a perfect fool of myself. That is literally the last line of the story.
1: Yeah, it's 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 bizarre and not really in a good way. No. Um,
0: no <laughs> versus, it's a real, just a really, the, really the, uncomfortable way to end something.
1: Thing. It's really uncomfortable. and the and again, keep in mind, these were these were first published individually. Right. So this wasn't published as a collection. This appeared on its own in a newspaper, and that was the end of the story yep. done. Um, which I find really strange. But the on the flip side in the televised adaptation, we end with Poirot and Hastings having an intimate dinner for two and a really lovely moment together. Hastings.
0: Yes, old chap? I have worked hard, Hastings, to prepare for you the delicious dinner. I have searched the shops for the exotic herbs. I have argued with a butcher who is a fool. I have beaten the scallops with a little mallet until my arm, it aches. And you sit there shoveling food in your mouth and writing in your little book.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. You're always rorting at me about order and method, so I've started to keep this notebook. I've got two columns... The first is to write down all the things I don't understand. Then the second is to write down the explanation.
0: Right, I mean, I think that it's a weird sense of domesticity that is that is um, unanticipated in a lot of ways, but it shows somehow, in a weird way, in the adaptation, Poirot's affection towards Hastings... This is going to be a really weird thing I'm about to say. Is almost protective. Hastings. Well, Hastings.
1: I would. I would argue that Hastings provides it. Unbeknownst to him, Hastings. Somewhat. Hastings provides emotional support. Right. And and sort of. Warmth and just overall, I mean, maybe this is a little ridiculous and going too far, but love yeah. for Poirot, who without him would be kind of a lonely figure just living alone in, in this apartment. And and there's a real—Luke Hastings has a real function— in a way that he doesn't really, in the at least in what we've read thus far of the books, where it really is more of Poirot just uses him as a tool occasionally, and then otherwise seems to be silently mocking him.
0: I don't know that he's. I don't know that he's mocking him. Um, I think that in the mysterious affair, he
1: could have been nicer in this in this story. I'll just say that. Just in general, to Mary Marvell, but also to Hastings. I don't love him in this story.
0: He comes across as um, incredibly condescending, especially because his entire... And it might, again, be uh, just a result of the length of it. But the fact that he has to basically summarize to Hastings what happened, because even after all of this has happened, Hastings doesn't get it. And he clearly... I don't even know that he's irritated, but he basically mansplains to Hastings, and I think the touching thing in the adaptation is um, at the very end of the episode. Hastings has this little book, and he's like making notes about like how how the case actually played out. And like what mm-hmm. were his observations and then why were his observations all wrong? <laughs> and
1: he's trying, he's trying so hard and Poirot is really touched by it. Like legitimately touched by it and not in a condescending no, way. No,
0: not at all in a condescending way. Like in a yeah. like he's looking yeah. at this person as somebody who I think provides some, you know, partnership support to him, mm-hmm. who is, mm-hmm. you know, like literally taking notes to try to be better. Yeah. And, you know, I find that that touching although the final line of the episode is something to the effect of there was no connection with China whatsoever now close your little book and eat your dinner
1: (laughs) and it is a little it is a little parental at times too but in in that way that a parent relies on a child for emotional well-being and support that's that you know that's that's not nothing I, I think there's whatever whatever you want to call it if it's a relationship between friends but in this in the televised adaptation especially there is there is an emotional warmth to that relationship that is a big part of why that Um, overall series is so beloved. Um, So there there are two other things I I at least wanted to touch on. One of them being skepticism and the idea of of skepticism as an ongoing theme in Christie's work. And we really get that here. What I mean by that is whenever we're introduced to something mystical or magical or defying logic and reason, 99% of the time, that is to be distrusted. Because Cold Hard Reason rules the day for Agatha Christie. It's really part of, at least what for me, makes her story so comforting, this idea that everything can be solved if you just apply your mind to it, which is why when we start the story and are given this legend of a diamond that is going to be placed into the eye of a Chinese god, we really shouldn't trust that there is much to this story but when I started reading it actually I was reminded of uh, another detective story and one that people often point to as the first detective story which is The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins and that book was published in um, 1847 I believe and it features a retired police sergeant um, named Cuff who has an an idiosyncrasy as all these men have to have he tends to roses in his retirement. He's obsessed with roses. Of course he does. Um, of course he does. But um, that novel concerns a diamond that was taken from the forehead of a Hindu god in India by an Englishman. It's then left to, to a girl who's about to turn 18 and the book opens on her 18th birthday and she's inheriting it. And it's not really looked upon as a good thing that she's inheriting it because people think that this diamond is uh, actually cursed. Um, the diamond is called the Moonstone. It's yellow. It's huge. Uh, everyone's obsessed with it. And um, there are these three mysterious Indian men that kind of, tr- they're always around wherever, wherever the diamond is. And the diamond brings all sorts of trouble onto, the, onto this woman. Eventually, there's, there's a mystery. The diamond is stolen. They figure it out. Everyone ends up being happy. The diamond itself disappears. And the three Indian men disappear along with it. And we're given this epilogue in the, in the novel where the diamond is placed back into the forehead of the Hindu God, where it belongs, and it reads rather silly uh, to a modern-day audience. I actually suspect it probably read a bit silly to a contemporary audience as well, and I think that Agatha Christie is poking very gentle fun at it with this kind of a story. Oh. Um, Lord Yardley even mentions that the diamond. he thinks the diamond is from India, which I think is even yet another connection to the Moonstone. And there's no way that people didn't think about the Moonstone when they started reading this story. And actually in um, a contemporary review in 1924, the Times Literary Supplement, they opened it up by saying, when you begin reading the story you you think that she's you know this author is cribbing off of the Moonstone but then you realize that she's doing something very different um, and unique and entirely her own Right. I mean, so I just thought that was interesting you know, I think
0: that's interesting but you know like the, the really weird factor in all of this is both the Moonstone and this are also riffing on the fact that um british aristocrats took a lot of giant diamonds from india and like everyone yes. every one of the yes. stories especially in the 19th century usually involved one of them being cursed Yep. So, I mean, this is like actually.
1: Colonial guilt, perhaps. perhaps yeah, colonial perhaps. guilt perhaps. attached to all of these legends. Well, and yeah. a
0: lot of them, like, a lot of them went missing. I was actually looking this up earlier because I was curious, and a lot of these so called cursed diamonds, like, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. And it's like, yeah, probably they were just stolen and sold, like, on the black market or something, but at the same time, or um, you know, cut down into smaller gems. But I mean, it is fascinating that both of these things are riffing on actual events that did in fact happen. You know, in the British
1: Empire. Yeah, yeah that's true. The other, the other antecedent I, I wanted to point out was once again Sherlock Holmes. There's a short story called "The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle." that involves a priceless gem being stolen from a hotel room and shoved down a goose's throat. Of course. This was um, this was actually the very first Sherlock Holmes story that Agatha Christie ever experienced. And I say experienced because she was so young that she didn't read it herself. Her older sister, Madge, who was a decade older than her, actually read it to her. And she actually writes in her autobiography... It was Madge who told me my first Sherlock Holmes story, The Blue Carbuncle, and after that, I had always been pestering her for more. The Blue Carbuncle, The Red-Headed League, and The Five Orange Pips were definitely my favorites, though I enjoyed all of them. Madge was a splendid storyteller. And we know from The Mysterious Affair at Styles, obviously, that Sherlock Holmes was very important to Christie, especially in the beginning of her, of her career, but I would argue that already with this short story, just a few years after Styles, she's getting a little bit more crafty with With how she is allowing herself to be influenced as a writer, in that Mysterious Affair of Styles, you could argue, is a bit of a, uh, fan fiction. as we said, You know, fan fiction thing where she's, she's essentially taking the Sherlock Holmes setup and plopping it into a modern day setting for her and not doing much else with it. But what's interesting here is that she's taking a premise, a very familiar premise, mm-hmm. you know, from right. tons of Victorian fiction and Sherlock Holmes, and then sort of turning it on its head or at least disproving it and poking gentle fun at it and twisting it around and doing her own thing. So I think she's, she's already finding her own voice in a way that she hadn't quite done yet Wait. with style. So we should talk a little bit about the ways in which this book is stuck in its own time, always a topic worth discussing with Agatha Christie. Uh, we obviously have a whole lot of Asian stereotyping going on here. Again, ultimately, this all ends up being a farce so perhaps that (laughs) softens a little bit of the effect here when we reach the end of the story but in the moment it's rather jarring and just for a a quick count here we get the word Chinaman countless times numerous every times few we get, pages. We, every few pages chinaman which again to be fair none of these words christy is not going out of her way to be offensive these words were not perceived by her to be offensive when she was using them or she wouldn't have used them but to a modern ear and eye they 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 are a bit jarring or they at least stick out uh we get the what i'll refer to as the ch word um
0: yeah
1: rhymes with rhymes with clink uh, we get that three times and I did notice that even though the, the word Chinaman is used liberally in the televised adaptation the ch word is not that has been excised yeah I'm sure um,
0: I'm sure British broadcast standards probably even yeah. even circa yeah. even 1990? in 1990 yeah,
1: yeah. probably yeah. probably
0: prevented that
1: um, we get the term oriental once uh, more problematically I think we get a reference to a pigtail and an embroidered robe a piece of embroidered silk and the scent of Joss stick She's uh, as being Eastern.
0: You know, I think that you do have to put it in context of what else was popular. We're talking about the fact that Fu Manchu, who is an evil Chinese poisoner criminal mastermind is first introduced in like 1913 and then he's mm. very early in the films and you know we also around the same time get the first Charlie Chan books and obviously Charlie Chan is portrayed in a good light because he's a good detective but at the same time it's like using Asian culture in a way that is appropriating and kind of uncomfortable not to mention the most famous Charlie Chan several years later would be played by a Swedish guy
1: Actually, Catherine made the really excellent point that even up to a couple of years ago it's still going on because I had I had forgotten about this.
0: I think I had made the point to you earlier that like just a handful of years ago, in that Cameron Crowe movie Aloha, Emma Stone, Emma Stone. Yeah,
1: I think she was supposed to be, I think she was supposed to be. I remember it being that she was supposed to be a quarter of some sort of oh, Asian yeah. well, extra because I think that was the half the half Hawaiian element or something Um, I don't know it doesn't matter whatever Emma Stone being in any way Asian is ridiculous no
0: and I mean I think that also you can look at every movie that involves like a stoic westerner who goes to China or to Japan to learn how to become a samurai or like a warrior of some kind. And like he also then in turn teaches the people around him also important lessons or he helps them in some way fight their enemies. That goes on now. And so, I mean, if we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, it's still not good.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many different examples. I also, I feel like I have to mention Mickey Rooney in
0: Breakfast um, at Tiffany's
1: Tiffany's because it is just, it's actually, I saw that movie not too long ago. It's horrible to watch. It is horrifying. I mean, it is shocking shockingly awful and it's
0: needless. Yeah. it doesn't add anything to the movie.
1: Anything. Well, they thought it added comedy. They thought it was just funny, but it's it is
0: Although hey, paste so speaking of a Belgian actress. We never we never yes. think we never think of Audrey Hepburn as Belgian, but Audrey Hepburn was born in Belgium. So that might be your oh. that might be your one and only famous Belgian actress. <laughs>
1: Eric would be would be yeah, so
0: who is in no way associated with Belgium, but who was in fact born
1: there. <laughs> Fun fact: um, We should also, in the the, the Asian stereotyping, we should um, include the another clue or hijinksy moment is that the villainous actor Gregory Rolfe, when he's stealing the diamond himself, actually smears grease paint on his eyes to make them look more Asian, and then draws attention to the fact that his eyes look more Asian as he's stealing the diamond so that he can then claim it wasn't him afterward, which is kind of devious, but also just adds to a little bit of the discomfort factor of all of the Asian stereotyping and appropriation oh, it's really going on in the story. Oh, it's really
0: gross, but at the same time it's yeah. also like, that guy had the chutzpah to like rub a little grease paint on his eyes and go in, say his own name, and then come back a little bit later and be like no, that wasn't me. That was a guy. That was a Chinese guy pretending to be me. I mean, that is some. Yeah. That is some kind of gross chutzpah. So that's about it for our first short story edition. You can join us next week, where we will be covering again Mister Poirot and Captain Hastings as they investigate the murder on the links.
1: Uh, and perhaps there will be a little romantic interest for Captain Hastings. Ooh la la. I've heard I've heard rumors to so that. You, you've, heard,
0: you've, heard, you've heard things. Mm-hmm. I've heard things. Great. Um <laughs> and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Brobcat B-R-O-B-C-A-T. And you can find our podcast at all
1: about the dame. You can find Kemper at Kemper Donovan, K-E-M-P-E-R-D-O-N-O-V-A-N. And you can find us on Instagram at all about the Dame.
0: So we hope to see all of you next week. Bye.
1: Bye.